April of 2004, a small group of computer programmers and technologists pitched investors on a piece of software that they were working on that they believed had the potential to allow digital cameras to become smarter in the sense that they would be, to quote one of the members of that group doing the pitching, more aware of their owner's location and preferences. They later realized, though, that the addressable market of digital camera users wasn't sufficient to give them the scale they would require to make their concept a viable business model, and thus they turned their attentions toward the budding world of telephone handsets of mobile phones. At the time, the world of mobile phone operating systems was dominated by two main players, Symbian and Windows Mobile. Windows Mobile was released by Microsoft in the year 2000 under the moniker Pocket PC 2000, but was redubbed Windows Mobile in 2003, available in several different flavors, different paid membership levels, basically, similar to how its main project, Windows, was sold to personal computer users. Symbian, though, was the far more popular mobile operating system of the two, used in phones and similar products made by Samsung, Motorola, Sony Ericsson, Nokia, Fujitsu, Sharp, and Mitsubishi and it began its life in the 1990s under the name Epoch 32, before being rebranded as part of a business restructuring. The company that created it, a business computer company called Scion Software, became Symbian Limited as part of a partnership between the folks at Scion and the folks at Nokia, Ericsson, Motorola, and Sony. The purpose of this merger was to take advantage of these respective companies' advantages as PDAs, personal digital assistants, merged with mobile phones. They essentially wanted to define what came next. And they wanted to do so quickly to prevent Microsoft, the omnipotent villain in many technologists' stories at this point in history, from stepping in and stomping all over the world of mobile like they had in the world of personal computers. Thus, Symbian OS, created and managed by this newly formed company, was born, and it largely dominated as Windows Mobile was fairly clunky and overall not good, and the only other real contender in this space at the time was Palm, which had an operating system, Palm OS, optimized for PDAs, not phones. So while Windows Mobile was able to reach an apex of popularity in the United States of 42% of the entire local mobile market in 2007. Most of the rest of its history has been as an also-ran. They had licensed Windows Mobile to four of the five largest mobile phone manufacturers in the world by 2008, but their market share was still only 14% of the global market. In contrast, Symbian, which was acquired by Nokia the same year, in 2008, had fairly impressive numbers all throughout the early 2000s, peaking at around 73% of the global market in late 2006, though dropping to just above half at 52.4% by 2008. From there, Symbian followed close behind Windows Mobile, never doing quite as badly, but still not looking great, the future a little more bleak each year. And the reason for that downfall of both the PC world behemoth's entrant in this space and the OS created and run by a well-known, well-respected consortium of some of the biggest electronics companies in the world, later held by the leading mobile phone maker in the world, Nokia, 
was the OS developed by that aforementioned tiny group of programmers and technologists who meant to develop smart software for digital cameras, but which ended up building something solid enough with sufficient potential that despite having trouble getting funding early on, was acquired by Google in mid-2005 and went on through rapidly iterating software and a clever licensing model to become the most dominant smartphone operating system in the world by far, with a stunning 74.45% of worldwide market share, vastly overshadowing its next closest rival, Apple's iOS operating system, as of 2009. This evolved digital camera software-turned-mobile-phone software behemoth is the Android operating system, and its decade-long shove match against Apple's iOS has been fascinating to watch, with one option informing the other, even as both compete to define different sorts of ecosystems on the devices, and the extended, invisible clouds of processing power and storage attached to those devices within which they live, and really that they determine the personality of. A smartphone is technically a piece of hardware, but a lot of what makes smartphones different from each other, especially right now, is the operating system. And as a consequence, the overall software experience that they offer users. What I'd like to talk about today, though, is the other tiny 2.3% market share or so that is made up of non-iOS, non-Android options, and which is increasingly owned by just one primary third option, that has gotten so popular in some parts of the world that it's actually in these locales, taking second place from Apple. And it's claiming that distinction for some very interesting reasons. Today, I want to talk about Kai OS and the present and future of feature phones. You're listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. The article I'd like to start with today comes from Quartz, and it's entitled, The Path to the Next Billion Internet Users is Through Feature Phones. This piece is about the growing stratification of the smartphone operating system space, a space in which, worldwide, Android is on about three quarters, 75% of all relevant devices, with Apple's iOS coming in at just short of a quarter, and all other mobile OSs making up about 2.3% of the market combined. Right now, though, there are some very interesting things happening in this space, things that could potentially result in just as shocking a turnaround in those numbers as the one that we saw back in the early 2000s when Symbian lost its dominance to Android before essentially disappearing from the market. One facet of this story is related to the ongoing trade war between the United States and China, which has created numerous hurdles for the Chinese phone manufacturer Huawei, which makes many different tech products but which sells phones that receive consistently high reviews from tech reviewers, and which has a global market share of about 9.15% as of July 2019. They will have tons of new hurdles in their path if they want to continue to operate internationally, and by all indications, they do intend to continue to operate outside of the Chinese market. Among these hurdles has been the United States government's efforts to keep American tech companies from working with this Chinese brand by declaring it a threat to national security, and among the U.S. tech companies impacted by this mandate is Alphabet, Google's parent company 
which would at first seem to be the least of Huawei's concerns, seeing as how it's also being denied the ability to bid on internet infrastructure in many countries around the world, and that it could completely lack access to the legitimate international market for high-end computer chips of various sorts. But Huawei smartphones run a version of Android, and Android is, like Google, a subsidiary company of Alphabet. So while Huawei could technically keep using Android, it is open source after all, it wouldn't be able to use the Android App Store or any Google-made apps like Maps and Search and Assistant. Consequently, it's likely that in the near future, if things do not change substantially, all of Huawei's phones could be rendered less and less useful, unable to easily gain new apps, unable to get some types of security updates, and generally just falling to pieces bit by tiny bit due to a lack of maintenance from the Android mothership. On the day I'm recording this, it's been announced that Huawei's new Mate 30 smartphone line will be released as planned in mid-September 2019. But as I mentioned, it will likely have a highly truncated version of Android installed, which will no doubt reduce its competitiveness against other Android phones on the market. Because of this new OS-related reality, Huawei is reportedly developing its own smartphone operating system called Hongmeng, or Harmony OS, in its international market-facing iteration, to ensure that it can control that somewhat fundamental aspect of its software destiny in the future. Unfortunately for Huawei and Huawei fans, though, this operating system was not originally developed to run on smartphones and will only, maybe, end up as a competitor to Android after some serious investment and revamping. Harmony OS was actually built to be an Internet of Things-focused operating system, allowing devices of various shapes, sizes, and purposes to interact and work harmoniously together. So the first device being released with Harmony OS natively installed is the Honor Vision, Honor being one of Huawei's subsidiary brands, and the Honor Vision is a smart TV. This new operating system, then, is not the kind of thing that you can just shuttle over to a smartphone and expect to have it work correctly, not to mention to have it work on par with a fully developed, long-evolved product like Android. Another more dominant facet of this story, though, is predicated on the emergence and popularity of feature phones in mostly developing, relatively less wealthy nations, populated by people who are nonetheless eager to communicate, to learn, and to expose themselves to the world beyond their local communities. A feature phone is technically a smartphone, by some definitions, but it's colloquially also known as a dumb phone to distinguish it from modern smartphone models. Your typical smartphone in 2019 has a screen taking up one whole side of the device, relatively or incredibly fast processors, touch screens and haptic feedback, all kinds of accelerometers and gyroscopes and GPS and other sensors, and high-speed internet capabilities. They have multiple high-resolution cameras, fingerprint and face-scanning security mechanisms, several types of antennas and modems, and in some respects, for some tasks, they're as or more powerful than some contemporary laptop computers. Modern smartphones, in truth, are less phones and more internet access devices, and their hardware and software are optimized to be used for browsing, streaming, and using social media. Feature phones on the other hand, while more than just a phone are far less internet access device than their fully smart kin. 
If you were of a certain age in the early 2000s, there's a good chance you owned a feature phone. I myself had a Motorola Razor back in my university days, and I'm certain I had a little candy bar-shaped Nokia at some point thenabouts as well. Feature phones almost always have a screen of some kind placed above a numerical keypad. Some feature phones also have a full QWERTY lettered keyboard, some that are hidden and can be unfolded or slid into view, while others, like most of the classic BlackBerry models, had full-on keyboards right underneath their screen. Most feature phone screens are not touch-sensitive. You use some kind of button to scroll through items on the screen, or in some rare cases to move a little cursor around on the screen, and you type things out with the keypad. And that's it. It's a far simpler machine, and that simplicity extends from the interface to the internal components. These phones usually have very lackluster memory, processing power, and graphical capabilities, because in most cases, they don't really need more than that. These phones were introduced at a time in which the internet as a whole was still relatively new, and the only mobile internet that was available was what we now call 2G. And almost as soon as 3G was released, smartphones emerged to take advantage of the vastly improved mobile internet speeds, and the new graphic, audio, and video capabilities that such speeds enabled. That was the whole concept behind the iPhone, and the rest of the smartphone world followed that same lead. But in the age of 2G, a very basic, mostly text-based internet, feature phones were the cat's meow. They were a step above the screenless phones that came before. They could play simple games like Tetris and Snake. You could use them to read your email and add events to your little low-res calendar. They did a shocking amount with very little, and I think a lot of people to this day who owned one when they were younger look back at them and their relatively limited capabilities and bad graphics and plastic cases and maybe sort of miss them in a way. They were resplendent of a very specific time in technological history. That's the case with wealthier, primarily northern and western countries at least. Throughout the rest of the world, feature phones have been around in some capacity for a while, and they stuck around even as the wealthier world started going through its smartphone revolution. And in recent years, feature phones have experienced a surge in popularity in these smartphone-sparse regions, flooding into places that previously had no phones, no internet access, in some cases barely any electricity, dramatically changing society as a consequence. Often for the better, but any change of this kind will inevitably be a mixed bag. In these sorts of areas, the local infrastructure are often unkind toward those who own a smartphone, the few who can afford one. And granted, there are some super cheap smartphones on the market these days due to the ever-cheapening of electrical components and processors and screens. You can actually find a really shady Chinese-exported no-name model for about $28, if you know where to look. But even at that price... If you live in a rural community, or a city within a country where the internet infrastructure is not great, where the prices for internet are sky high, and if what you really want is just a means of staying in touch with family, talking with your friends, receiving and sending messages, getting information about agricultural prices, or train and bus times, or to read and listen to music when you have a spare moment, in such cases, feature phones are by far the best option, and they tend to be cheaper outright than even those very cheap, shady smartphones that are available. This will sound almost miraculous in an age of power-hungry, massive, high-end smartphones, but many feature phones can last a few days, if not weeks, on a single charge. 
they sip at energy. They sip at data as well. Many of them can't even use 3G, much less 4G, or the upcoming 5G mobile internet. And so they're able to make use of older antennas, which are cheaper, and they send less data at a time. So the latent limitations of the device ensure that using it, by default, is cheaper as well. You'll often also find clever local additions to these phones, which helps them sell in a given market. One of the most popular feature phone brands in the world, Geophone, has helped a huge chunk of the Indian population access higher-speed internet without breaking the bank by introducing what has been referred to as smart feature phones. These phones are basically just feature phones. You wouldn't necessarily notice the difference between a geophone and an old-school Nokia, for instance, just by looking. It still has a screen located above a collection of buttons and a numerical keypad dominating its face. But the screen is quite a bit better quality, much higher resolution and brighter. It has higher-end microphone components for clearer calls, better antennas to ensure coverage, even in rural areas or within interference-heavy Indian cities. You can use it as a flashlight or an FM radio. You can take decent photos with the camera. You can plug in SD cards to make up for its lack of much internal storage space. And you can access for free an array of entertainment options provided by the phone service company from which the phone is purchased, all of which are optimized for the phone. A lot of the newer Geo phones also allow users to access up to 4G data speeds, which is massively more than most users will need due to the limitations of the device, but still a major upgrade if you want to, for instance, watch streaming videos or listen to streaming music on your device. Two things that are finally possible, despite these not being full-screened Super HD smartphones. Similar special considerations and upgrades are being offered in several African countries by a company called Techno, which recently introduced the T901 feature phone, a phone that, like the Geophone, is not noticeably different from every other Nokia or Motorola candy bar phone ever made, but which represents a huge step up in terms of what is being offered for an affordable price in these regions, with special tweaks that cater to the target audience. The T901's main selling point, tellingly, is that it runs on 3G networks, rather than just 2G, something that, as I mentioned before, allows for online access of media, of photos and videos, rather than just text, and that upgrade enables an onboard app store, which makes available numerous free and very useful apps like WhatsApp, YouTube, Google Maps, Twitter, Google Assistant, and Facebook. The phone has built-in GPS, Wi-Fi, and Bluetooth. It holds two SIM cards, which is great for folks in these countries who often have numbers on two different networks to ensure they always have at least one accessible signal, and to keep their data charges low by not going above certain ceilings that would increase their usage fees. The phone has a battery that gives it a standby time of 25 days, Meaning, if you don't use it for 24 days, it'll still be charged and ready to use, and which provides 19 hours of calls, or similar uses, before a charge is required. The phone has front and rear cameras, and although these are only 1.3 and 0.3 megapixel cameras, they're still way better than having no camera, and they're optimized for low-light conditions and darker skin tones. And though the quality is nothing compared to the fancy cameras in Apple and Samsung and similarly high-end smartphones, the pixel density works just fine for the smaller size and lower resolution on the feature phone screen. In its first year after launching, in 2017, Geophone sold 25 million 
of its smart feature phones, adding to its sales of other models to capture 38% of the total feature phone market in India. Techno, meanwhile, has doubled down on the feature phone form factor, even as it produces cheap smartphone models for other markets like Pakistan and parts of Southeast Asia. Part of what has made these new, smart feature phone devices work as they do, though, is less about the hardware and more about the software. I mentioned earlier that 2.3% of the mobile phone space is occupied by phones that are not Android or iOS, and a growing portion of that third-place percentage is being occupied by a single operating system, Kai OS. Kai OS is the operating system on both the Geophone and the Techno T901. It's the third biggest mobile operating system in the world, but it's actually the second most used after Android in some countries, including India, where Android still owns the vast majority of the market share, but where KaiOS has managed to squeeze out iOS for second place status, which is a pretty significant thing when you consider that India has a massive population, some of which is part of the 3 billion or so people on the planet that still do not have access to the internet. On its website and in its marketing materials, KaiOS has the tagline, The Emerging OS, which speaks to its status as a newbie to the market, it only came into existence in 2017, and to its intended audience, emerging markets around the world. KaiOS started its life as a fork of the Firefox OS mobile operating system, which Mozilla, Firefox's parent company, discontinued in 2016. In 2018, Google invested in Kai OS, as did Reliance Geo, the Indian telecom company that makes the aforementioned Geo phone. In Q1 of 2018, about 23 million devices with Kai OS as their operating system were shipped, and shipments have reportedly increased substantially since then. It's estimated that there are nearly 100 million Kai OS driven devices in the wild as of mid 2019. Kai OS has several advantages over Android and iOS when it comes to operating on feature phones, which in practice means that it has advantages in countries with developing economies. Because again, feature phones often just make a lot more functional and economic sense in such places. One of Kai OS's advantages is that its app store contains HTML5-based apps, which means that they are more universal and less power-hungry than those made for smartphones, which are typically Java-based and thus more processing, resource-intensive, whereas HTML5-based apps are essentially just websites. This OS can run on devices with a mere 256 megabytes of memory, which compared to the modern builds of Android and iOS, which can require several gigabytes apiece minimum, is pretty amazing. The two big operating systems have evolved to serve bigger and more powerful smartphones, while Kai OS has intentionally kept small and simple so as to work well on just about any phone, no matter how cheap and piddly in the processor department. And importantly, because of where it came from, based on the now defunct Firefox OS, this operating system was built with modern amenities and functionality in mind. So despite being so small, it's still able to bring many modern powers and conveniences like 4G LTE internet, GPS, Wi-Fi, and the aforementioned HTML5 apps to phones that would have previously been limited to far more lackluster offerings, mostly just a phone with very few non-phone features. Now, in most cases, you will not be watching full-res Netflix shows on these phones, nor will you be 
multitasking, playing high-end games, or indulging in the best that the modern app world has to offer. There are very few apps currently compared to the more developed Android and iOS app stores. Despite those shortcomings, though, these devices with this operating system are head and shoulders above what was available before in almost all regards. It allows inexpensive devices, some of the newer mid-range ones as cheap as $15, though you can find more and less expensive options as well. It allows them to have outsized quality and outsized features for the price. And when we're looking at these sorts of economies and the kinds of incomes most people within such economies have to work with, being able to bring in those sorts of powers to more people at a price that is not outlandish is as impressive in some ways as the flashiest, most whiz-bang new innovations being presented in the higher-end smartphone companies' flagship offerings each year. It's a different metric of success that they're aiming for here. And according to that metric, they are already outperforming their better-funded and better-known rivals, even after just a few short years on the market. Interestingly, this trend of new models of what would be seen in some parts of the world as outdated technology has echoes in wealthier economies as well. There are streamlined, simplified phones becoming available, most through Kickstarter and similar types of websites, but some working with other types of investment that essentially aim to help people who are overwhelmed by their smartphones to step back from the always-on, increasingly stressful interactivity that such devices enable by providing them with a phone that does very little. Usually they just make phone calls and maybe text, but no more than that. Black and white screen, simple, well-designed buttons on a museum-quality case. These simple phones are often quite expensive, but the folks that they are aimed at can afford to pay $400 or $800 for a second phone because their main one is too powerful and capable and therefore distracting. I do wonder if the feature phone renaissance will make its way to these areas at some point, as it seems like a slam dunk to repurpose some of these Kai OS models in other markets, where you could double the price and still have them cost less than an average city dweller's brunch. Then again, maybe not. The Kai OS phones are trying to add more functionality to relatively simple pieces of hardware, while the increasingly expensive high-end phone and nothing-but-a-phone options are trying to figure out how they can remove as much as possible and wrap that service in a beautifully designed case. So it might not be a match made in heaven after all, despite the seeming similarities. The bigger picture here is that the majority of the world's human population lives in economies that are either considered to be developing, that is, not as wealthy, or newly developed, like China and Pakistan, where they're moving folks into the middle class and out of poverty at record rates, but they still have hundreds of millions of people who have not been pulled up yet, and who are still working with far less money and far less access than their more fortunate, wealthier countrymen. If Kai OS can own the space between not having a phone and having a high-end smartphone, that puts them in a very fortuitous position to, first off, control an incredibly vast market, potentially larger than the smartphone market, if those other 3 billion people who have zero access can be pulled up into the feature phone range. And second, to be in a position to then carry those people along into other device types, either as they become wealthier and can then afford more expensive phones, or when some new device type comes along, and becomes ubiquitous. Wearables or augmented reality devices, or some other cool new thing that we're not even talking about yet. 
Because they, KaiOS, would be the service that so many people trust. They would be the company people have been using for years, where they already have an account, where they have all their contacts, where they have access to familiar media offerings. And it would just be easier to move from device to device as KaiOS moves from device to device. KaiOS could be, in other words, what Facebook and Google have tried to be, offering up free services to folks in these regions in an attempt to be the omni-company serving all of their needs, and therefore in a position to display ads to them and sell them services, and be the always-on intermediary between them and the internet, and them and each other. It could also allow KaiOS to be what Android hoped to be, and what it could still be, potentially, if it ever decided to bifurcate into multiple different OSs optimized for different things. It could be on all of these devices of all types all around the world, and it could be what iOS could probably never be because of its focus on a certain economic tier. There are, also, a handful of other smaller, less popular, and generally less developed OSs operating in a similar space as KaiOS, but none have had their breakout moment quite yet, and few would have any name recognition beyond the programming communities that work on them. That doesn't mean that they will not have such a moment, and that we won't be thinking about them in the terms that we currently reserve for KaiOS at some point in the near future. But for the moment, India is developing fast, many African countries are growing very quickly, both in terms of economy and in terms of population. And these are countries with the youngest populations on the planet as well. So while today's richer world is getting older, on average, the younger world, the world that is in general less wealthy today, will almost certainly blossom as an increasingly desirable demographic. And Kai OS, at the moment at least, would seem to be in a very good position to ride that wave. The book that I'd like to recommend today is called Astounding by author Alec Navala Lee. Astounding is a book about the history of the so-called golden age of science fiction and how that so-called golden age, went on to influence science fiction as a genre, but also science fact and military history and numerous other interconnected industries and realms of thought because of the people involved and because of the things that they were talking about at that period of time. The book mostly centers around a man named John Campbell, who many people have not heard of, but he ran a magazine called Astounding, alongside several other related science fiction and fantasy magazines back in the decades leading up to World War II and throughout World War II. But he was also known to be the person who helped cultivate the careers of science fiction greats like Robert Heinlein, Isaac Asimov, and L. Ron Hubbard who started out as a science fiction and fantasy short fiction writer and eventually went on to found the Church of Scientology. John Campbell got them published, but he was also their editor, he was their idea sounding board, and he reportedly gave all of them a bunch of their most popular and well-known ideas, as he had some very specific ideologies that he wanted to share with the world and that he saw could be most effectively gotten out into the world through these budding luminaries. Now, this is not a complete history of science fiction by any measure, but it is a very interesting look at some of these characters about this point in time and about the influence that science fiction as a genre has had on the world writ large. If any of that sounds interesting to you, consider picking up a copy 
of Astounding by Alec Navala Lee. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find my blog at exilelifestyle.com, and you can find the show notes for this episode and every episode of the podcast at letsknowthings.com. Feel free to reach out and say hello on your social network of choice. I am Colin Wright on Facebook and at Colin is my name on most of the other networks. Thank you so very much for listening. I'm Colin Wright, and I'll talk to you again next week. Thank mm-hmm. you.